Good morning. How are you guys doing? You doing well? You awake? You ready to go? Okay, awesome. If this is your first time joining us, I'm so glad that you're here. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors of the church. And this morning, we are continuing what will end up being for us a two-month journey through the letter of 1 Peter. So if you've got a Bible, please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, not a problem. 1 Peter chapter 3 can be found on page 1015 in the Bibles under your chairs. Page 1015, the Bible's under your chairs. If you don't own a Bible, just go ahead and take that home with you. That's our gift to you. Just always want to encourage you to follow along with us because at City Light, we as followers of Jesus believe that our ultimate and final authority is with God and his word, not me and my ideas. So I always want you, if you can, just to follow along with us in the scriptures. Now, as we've walked this journey through 1 Peter, you've probably noticed one theme coming up again and again. And it's this reality. Eternity changes everything. Eternity changes everything. That's been coming up again and again in 1 Peter. Eternity changes everything. I want you to imagine for a moment that this trusty rope that uh, I got out of my basement that Soren and I uh, colored this morning, I want you to imagine that this rope doesn't end at the window there. I want you to just imagine for a moment this goes on forever and ever and ever. This rope is a picture of eternity. It's hard to wrap our minds around eternity, right? But eternity changes everything goes on forever and ever. And in comparison to eternity, if you can imagine this rope going on forever, this is our life here and now. Eternity changes everything. And in 1 Peter, Peter's assumption is that if you've been born again into a new life, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, if you've been born again into an imperishable hope that can't fade, can't run out, protected in heaven for you, if you've been born again into an eternal hope, Peter's assumption is that that eternal hope changes everything about the way you live this little red sliver right here. Eternity changes everything. See, instead of just living for the little slivers on this rope, you know, living for a degree or living for getting out of the debt incurred from that degree or, you know, living for a marriage or children or uh, financial stability, which is an oxymoron, or, you know, or living for, you know, some of you, you're, you know, it's like been a long fall and you're in my boat, you're 30 years old and already dreaming about retirement, you know, and you're just, you're living for these little slivers. But the assumption in First Peter is that if you've been born again into an eternal hope that each one of these slivers is now changed. That now your goal in everything, whether it be at school or in paying off your debt or in your job, your marriage, your family, in your retirement, that your goal is to live wherever you are in this part 
in such a way that it makes the greatest impact forever. Because, I mean, this is so short. And then it's forever and ever and ever. And what we do now impacts eternity. And most recently in 1 Peter, Peter's been addressing how our eternal hope transforms the purpose, the ultimate purpose for which we live in this little sliver. In 1 Peter 2.12, remember from last week that he told us to live our lives in such a way that people will see our good deeds wherever we are in this and glorify our God. That they'll see our purpose in life is that others will see our lives and want to know this Jesus forever. That's the assumption in 1 Peter. Life, everything changed in light of eternity. And by the way, I just, I'm so encouraged by that verse, you know, that live in such a way that others will see your good deeds and glorify your God. Because how many of you would say, I'm not the world's greatest speaker of the gospel? Say, so I'm, I'm not always just feeling like I'm the, okay, I'm the, I'm the only one. Okay, no, yeah, I'm just not the most, you know, and he says, you don't speak super well? Live well. Live in such a way that people see your good deeds and glorify God. See, eternity, it changes everything. And this morning, as we turn one more time to our journey in 1 Peter, Peter's going to apply eternity to our marriages. He's going to apply eternity to our marriages. How does it change your marriage if you're living to make the greatest splash possible for eternity? That's what he's going to get at. So let's look together. We'll read it. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Marriage in light of eternity. It says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children. If you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. That's marriage in light of eternity. 
And here's the big idea that Peter's getting at that we're going to unpack for about the next half an hour. The big idea that Peter's getting at is marriage in light of eternity. If you're in a marriage where you're living in light of eternity, then here's the call on your life. Live so your spouse glorifies God. Live so your spouse glorifies God. See, in a sense, in light of eternity, marriage is actually far more important than we might have previously thought. Because in light of eternity and God's purpose for our lives, if he calls you into marriage, he's calling you to be a primary conduit of getting glory, ultimate glory, from your spouse. That's extraordinary. In light of eternity, in a sense, marriage is way more important than we would have previously thought, but in a sense, it's also far less important. Marriage is no longer the point. The glory of God is the point. I love this quote from Francis Chan. He says, Eternity changes how we enjoy marriage and everything else in life. Eternity changes how we love It would be unloving to get my wife and kids so focused on this life that they were unprepared for the next. Some Christians emphasize marriage so much that it might lead some to believe that the goal of Christianity is to have a happy marriage. By the way, that's idolatry. That's idolatry. It's saying, my ultimate God is a good marriage, and Jesus is just my functional Savior to give me that. That will lead to a devastating marriage. No, he's saying, no, 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 no. Marriage is most joyous where God's glory is sought above all. So he goes on, he says, Some Christians emphasize marriage so much that it might lead some to believe that the goal of Christianity is to have a happy marriage, and God becomes a means to that end. But by doing so, we may be hurting marriages rather than mending them. Couples become so self-centered rather than mission-focused. Remember that the Bible is not a book about marriage, it's a book about God. Peter's saying, I want you to live this marriage, this little sliver on it, this tiny piece of rope in such a way that it impacts eternity. He's saying, live so your spouse glorifies God. Now, of course, the question comes, how do you do that? How do you live so that your spouse glorifies God? Well, this is where the Bible actually celebrates, in a beautiful way, diversity. The Bible celebrates diversity in such a beautiful way because when you ask the question, how can I live in such a way that my spouse glorifies God, it's actually a different answer if you're a wife than if you're a husband. The Bible celebrates the diversity of genders. And so what we're going to do is dig into how Peter uniquely tells wives to live 
so that their husbands might glorify God, and then how husbands should live that their wives might glorify God. That's what we're going to get into. But if, if we could, knowing that that's where we're going, can we just put a quick like parenthesis here? Let's just, let's just put a quick parenthesis and talk just like among us girls for a moment. Because I know, and by that I mean everybody, I know that any time we look together at a passage in the scripture about marriage, specifically one that talks about the, gen, the roles of genders as being complementary and not the exact same as one another, that for many of us, very significant objections begin to rise, right? Like, some of you, your inner lawyer is about ready to rise up and punch me in the face, and all I did was read a passage. Now, but I understand that. I understand that. And so what I want to do with this quick parenthesis is just very briefly answer what I've found to be the four kind of most common objections I get as a pastor whenever like a passage of scripture like this one comes up. The first most common objection I actually get is from single folks. And the objection basically just goes something like this. I'm single. Therefore, whatever is coming next in this sermon has nothing to do with me. I'm single so the rest of this is irrelevant. And so it's kind of tempting to just kind of tune me out. But here's the reality. The majority of you will get married. And let me just tell you from experience, marriage involves enough on-the-job training. It's great if you can figure out what marriage generally is all about before you get into it. To know the purpose of marriage ahead of time will really help you know the kind of person you should be pursuing, say, in a dating relationship. Knowing what marriage is all about will help you know, am I dating someone or am I pursuing the kind of people that actually also want to live so that their spouse will glorify God? Now, the other reason this is relevant for those of you who are single is just simply experientially, I would say, I have been helped perhaps most as a husband, by a couple of my single brothers in the faith. And, and I'll, I'll tell you why. If you have been married for like more than a day, <laughs> you are biased by your own experience. One of the most overrated sources of wisdom in the Christian life is experience. Experience is one of the most overrated sources of wisdom in the Christian life because wisdom based on experience so often, for those of us who maybe have a little bit more experience with a particular thing, supplants biblical truth. Wisdom from experience is great. Please do get it. But it's my single brothers in Christ who are not so biased by their own sin that they don't, get, they don't give me a pass in marriage. You know, like sometimes you're hanging out with someone else who's married and you're like, I'm struggling with this. They're like, yeah, I know. Isn't that just like impossible? Let's just move on. But my single brothers, they're not jaded by their own sin. So they're like, dude, love your wife as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. You're like, oh, right, okay. So please, like if you're here and you're single, even if you never plan to marry, uh, you can be one of the greatest encouragements of marriages. Second objection I often get when a passage like this comes up is simply this. Distinctions in role between genders makes equality between genders impossible. 
distinction in role between genders makes equality between genders impossible. Now, the reason we know that that's not true is because of the triune God that we worship. The God of the Bible is a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, but they're not one another. One God eternally existing in three persons. The Father is completely equal to the Son in ontology, essence, and being. Similar, the Son is completely equal to the Spirit in ontology, essence, and being. Total equality. But notice as you read the scripture, the Father always sends the Son. The Son never sends the Father. The Spirit always spotlights and glorifies the Son. The Son never the Spirit. There's total equality and yet distinct roles among the persons of the Godhead. And so we know as being created in his image that we, in the life of the family and the church, can have total and complete equality while distinction in role. A third objection that often comes up when I address a passage like this, which is, by the way, one of the reasons that at City Light we primarily just work through books of the Bible is so that we can't skip passages like this. Third, verses like this have been used to justify abuse. That's true. That's true. Verses like this have been used at various times throughout Christian history to justify abuse on the part of wicked men. We can't deny that. Instead, we need to own it and even corporately repent of it. But it won't do us any good instead of repenting to throw these verses out as though they don't exist. An example of why we can't do that would be if you just, our church, for example, we, we have a budget um, so take a breath. We have a budget, I promise. Um, <clears throat> and within that budget, we give, um, we set aside money for a benevolent fund. This is to give to folks within our Christian community who are, fall, have fallen on hard financial times, pay their bills, di- different things, and, and we use it all, all over the place all the time because Jesus has told us to love our neighbor as ourself, and that's what I would want. And I will tell you from experience that that benevolent fund has been wildly taken advantage of in the past. We have helped folks and they have abused our help. You know what we don't do? Close out the benevolent fund line item in our budget. Because we can't allow abuses of scripture to stop us from rightly understanding and applying scripture. Final objection I typically get when specifically 1 Peter chapter 3 comes up is that this, these verses are written to spouses with, who are married to someone who's not yet following Christ. And so it's not relevant, let's say, uh, to tell wives of believing husbands to submit to their husbands because, again, this is written to those who have wives or husbands that aren't yet following Jesus. Now, that's just exegetically not true. I mean, take a look at chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if 
some do not obey the word. He's not saying, he's not writing to only those whose husbands disobey the word. He's saying, I'm writing to all of you even if your husband doesn't obey the word. Now, similarly, even if we didn't have that, we would know it'd be awfully strange for God to say, I want you to live this way so your husband will glorify me, but once he starts doing that, immediately stop. (laughs) It would just be awfully strange. Okay, so I may not have answered every objection you have, and I understand that. I really do. And I'm very sensitive to the fact that some of us have experience that make passages like this challenging to hear and read. But here's what I would say as a way of encouragement. If this is God's word and this is marriage in light of eternity, we should most certainly expect that it's going to cut against the grain of our preferences and proclivities. If it didn't, we would need to doubt whether this was really God's word or not. So having said that, let's take a look at marriage in light of eternity where each spouse Their ultimate and only goal is to live so that their spouse will see their life and marvel at their God. I want to know that God. I want to follow that God. I want to worship that God too. How do we do that? Well, Peter first begins with wives, and the majority of what Peter says is to wives. In Ephesians chapter 5, the majority of what Paul says is to husbands. I think the reason the majority of what Peter says here is to wives is because Peter's primarily seeking to encourage those who might be on the receiving end of cultural abuses. So notice he primarily, in the passage we looked at last week, talks, talked to those who are governed, not the governing. And then he also looked at those who are servants primarily and masters second. And similar, similarly here, he speaks first and most verbosely to wives and then to husbands. So, wives, how do you live in such a way that your husband will see your life and be dazzled by your God? In summary, I'll state it and then we'll read it. Wives, win your husbands with respect and purity. Win your husbands with respect and purity. Chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. What Peter is saying is, wives, if you want your husband to be dazzled by the God that you serve, the primary way that you win him, the primary, not the only, the primary way that you win him is not with your words, but with your conduct, with your respectful and pure conduct. See, submission in this passage is a wife's attitude of the heart that longs to earnestly love support, encourage, and follow her husband while always pointing him toward Jesus. Wives, what Peter is saying here is what good will it do you to try to berate your husband 
into being the man of God you long him to be. Peter is saying, is that really the way that you think he'll look at your life and be dazzled by your God? No. It's primarily, he's saying, with respect and purity. Now, so closely tied to respect is purity. Take a look at verses 3 to 4. It says, do not let your adorning be external. So he's saying, okay, I want you to live, wives, so that your husband see your life and glorify your God. How? Respect and purity. So now he's getting into how respect bears itself out in your lifestyle. It says, do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. Now, it's often at this point where folks will go, see, this is culturally conditioned. It's talking about braiding hair, which we all do. It's talking about wearing gold jewelry that we all do, so you don't need to pay any attention to this. Yeah, but also look at the next phrase. Or the clothing you wear. In the Greek, it just means clothing. Now, ladies, do you really think that what Peter's doing here is forbidding you from putting on clothing? Husband, shut your mouth. <laughs> what Peter is not saying you may not put on any clothing. In the same way, he's not forbidding the braiding of hair or the putting on of jewelry. And he's certainly not forbidding the putting on of clothing. Put on your clothes. <laughs> what he's doing is he's saying, don't let that external adorning be what gets your primary energy, time, and money. Look at what he says next. But, here's the contrast, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. He's saying, wives, if you long for your husband to see your life and glorify your God, then you're gonna really have to go against the cultural norm. In ancient Rome, and in America. We are living in a devastating time for women where a woman's value is almost exclusively in our culture based upon her external adorning. And many of you, I understand, you live with this feeling, ladies, of this just this intense pressure that you spend inordinate, that you have to spend inordinate amount of time, money, energy, stress on the way you look. It is a horrendous thing that we have done to you. And what Peter is saying is, look, if you want to live your life so that your husband's dazzled by your God, he's not saying beauty, physical beauty doesn't matter. I mean, God made you beautiful. He's saying you don't need Jesus to be externally beautiful. He's saying your husband's not going to look at your external beauty and be dazzled by your God. All sorts of people that don't worship your God have dazzling physical beauty. What he's saying is, if you want to, your husband to see your life and glorify your God, then give your primary energy, 
time, money, focus to your inward adorning, not your external. The external will fade. The internal will not. If I were to look, wives, at your schedule, your energy, your bank statement, what would it say is your primary adorning? Peter's saying you want to dazzle, you want your husband to be dazzled by your God. Internal. So you're going to just need to tell the cultural lies to take a hike. Now, I think it's important at this point to notice that Peter is going to get pretty specific with what this respectful conduct looks like. Notice what he says. Pursue this inward adorning, the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. That's what you're pursuing, ladies, internally. This internal adorning is a gentle, quiet spirit. Now, I know that many of you, when you hear that, you go, I am the furthest thing from quiet. Is this passage telling me I need to, like, get rid of my personality? Is this passage telling me, like, I can never be happy, I can never laugh a lot, like, I can never just be boisterous, life of the party, I just, like, if I'm going to be the hidden person of the heart, I just have to shut my mouth and just, no, it's not. It's absolutely not. And the reason we know that is because the Bible never equates quietness with silence. Biblical quietness, if you look throughout the Proverbs, is actually a picture of tranquility, a lack of strife, not silence. Biblical silence is exemplified in Ephesians 4.29. Paul says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. I mean, most of us could just write out a whole life of marriage on those words. Let no corrupting talk, not a word that tears your spouse down. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. You can be verbally loud and biblically quiet. You can be verbally loud You can have a great time and be biblically quiet because biblical quietness is more not about the intonation of your voice but by the goal of your words. And then he says, not just a quiet spirit but a gentle one. Now gentleness in the New Testament is actually very often used of Jesus and a calling upon all Christians. So this isn't highly unique to wives. And Jesus, it's said of him in Matthew 11 that, remember, he says, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest because I'm gentle. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Biblical gentleness, wives, just means go easy on your husbands, not because they deserve it, but because Jesus is so easy on you. It's important to note that Peter does not in this passage ground anything I've said in a husband's worthiness. He does not say, be respectful because your husband's so respectable. If that were the case, you'd never have to be respectful. 
because none of your husbands are perfectly respectable. Notice what he says in verse 5. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God, not hoped in their husband, hoped in God, used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. Wives, if you are struggling to live a pure and respectful life before your husband because he's just so unrespectable. I mean, if you're married, ladies, you have a husband that struggles to be respectable. And some of your husbands, more so than others, it's like, he's never cracked the Bible with me. I don't know if he's ever prayed for me. The responsibility level is, yeah. What Peter is saying is, one of the most important things you can ever learn about marriage. A godly spouse is not primarily responding to their spouse in the way they conduct themselves. A godly spouse is primarily responding to how God has treated them in the way they conduct themselves with their spouse. So he's saying, wives, if you're struggling to respect your husbands, the answer is not going to be found in changing him. Yes, absolutely. Speak words of encouragement. Build up. Confront sin. That's a respectful and helpful thing to do if done well. But ultimately and primarily pursue hope in God. If you're struggling with respect, per pursue hope in the God who is great so you don't have to control your husband. Pursue hope in the God who is gracious so that you don't have to point out all of your husband's faults. Pursue the God who is glorious and above all good, who satisfies your soul. Pursue hope in him so that you can treat your husband in a way that he absolutely does not deserve. The way Jesus has treated you. So ladies, the question is, what is getting your primary adorning effort? What's getting your primary adorning effort? Is it outward beauty or hope in God that produces respect and purity? What are you going after? Primarily. Now, husbands, Remember, we have the same goal, guys. To live our lives before our wives in such a way that they will see our lives and go, I want to walk with that God. I want to worship that Jesus. Tell me more about him. If they already worship him, they're just like, wow, that's who he is. This is amazing. And by the way, I just as an aside tell you, this is possible in marriage. I've experienced this with, with my wife, Andrea. I mean, we're like every other married couple. We fight, we have our challenges. No, no question about it. We have experienced the same thing everyone who gets married has. Mountaintops and valleys. It's normal. But I'll tell you what. The way that Andrea has sacrificed so much so that we can make much of Jesus here in Philadelphia. I mean, sacrificed different things financially, security, just all these things the world tells you you need to be deeply satisfied. She sacrificed them. 
I mean, whenever it's like, okay, there's this opportunity to give some money away, it's like, yeah, yeah, let's just give it away, just give it away, just give it away. That makes me marvel at the God that must be sustaining her. I want to know that God more. This is possible. So husbands, how do we do it? In summary, win your wives with honor. Win your wives with honor. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way or according to knowledge, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Let's just stop there before you all start killing me. Weaker vessel, in this context here, is just drawing out the general principle that men are typically physically stronger than women. That's it. It's not talking about emotions, not talking about intellect, not talking about anything. It's just talking about that if, like, I took nine married couples out of, nine married couples out of any ten, I would pick. If I forced you and your wife, gentlemen, to wrestle, you'd probably win. That's all he's saying. It's a general truth, and it's not absolute. It's not saying that there aren't couples that aren't like that. Just simply saying the general principle that men are physically stronger than women and therefore, this is the key, honor husbands always includes physical gentleness. Husbands, if you have ever been anything but physically gentle with your wife. Repent to God and her today. I'm pleading with you. Repent to God and her today. Wives, if you are living with a physically abusive husband, tell the elders and call the police. Submission does not rule that out. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Gentlemen, how are we meant to live so that our wives see our lives and glorify our God? Answer, honor them. Honor them. Now, how do we do that? Well, the key is in this little phrase in verse 7. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way or according to knowledge. Now, good Bible scholars have a bit of a debate here. Is he saying live with your wives according to knowledge of God or according to knowledge of your wife in order to honor them? But here's the thing. We need not choose between the two. Of course, husbands, if we want to honor our wives, we are going to need to be daily growing in our knowledge of Jesus because he's our paradigm for what it looks like to honor your spouse the way that he honors his bride, the church. So if you don't, aren't growing in your knowledge of Jesus, it will be very difficult to follow his paradigm for honoring your wife. So pursue him daily because it's in pursuing him you see Jesus is immensely gentle and patient with his bride. Prays for his bride all over the Gospels constantly. Speaks at times truth that's hard to hear out of love. And lays down his preferences and even his life for the sake of her flourishing. 
We have to be growing in our knowledge of Jesus because that's the paradigm for how we honor our wives. But of course, if we're not growing also in our knowledge of our wives, what will end up happening is something that's actually, I'm ashamed to say, has happened many times in my own marriage. You start honoring a generic wife, not the one you're actually married to. If you're not growing in your knowledge of your wife, you will honor a generic wife rather than the one that you're married to. So when we first got married, it was like, okay, I'm a husband, I love my wife, and I love Jesus, I'm supposed to read the Bible with her. Okay, Andrea, we're gonna read the Bible this way, you know, we'll open it up, and I'll have a little mini sermon, and that'll be great, and, and then we'll, we'll pray together, and, and I'll pray for you, and you'll pray for me, and it'll just focus like this, and, and it'll always work on a schedule, so we'll do it at the same time every day, because that's how I function, and yeah, this is gonna be how I honor you. I was honoring a generic wife that didn't exist perfect example of how this came up like a year ago was a, a guy in my city group um, honored his wife by getting her like a night away alone at a hotel because you know they have little kids just like we do and, um, and, and she's just like you know I'm, I'm really tired and he's like I'm gonna honor you you can get, get you a hotel room you just I'll take care of the kids relax she's an introvert that was so honoring for her rejuvenated her, gave her joy. Now, the Matt who had been married like three years would have immediately gone, that's the way I should honor my wife and, got, and just immediately gone out and gotten a hotel room I couldn't afford for her to stay at overnight. I'll, I'll take care of Soren and you just go. My wife is an, an extreme extrovert. A night alone at a hotel for her is torture. My wife Absolute, we don't own a TV because my wife hates television. There's a television in every hotel room on the planet. If I don't know her, if I'm not a student of my wife, I'm not really going to honor her. I'm just going to honor some generic wife I don't really know. So husbands, here's, and here's the reality. Uh, at the end of this passage, I just love how Peter closes this. I did not see this coming when I was first studying it. Live with your wives in an understanding way. Show them honor. Look at the end. So that your prayers may not be hindered. I didn't see that coming. I thought I was going to say, you know, because they're a picture of the church and you're representing Christ to them, you know, all this stuff. No, it's just a lovely reminder that there's something bigger in the universe going on than your marriage. Because the assumption is he's writing to these people who are living in such a way that they want everyone to see their lives and glorify their God. He's saying, you think that's going to happen? You think God's going to honor that prayer while you're dishonoring your wife? I don't have any daughters, but let's imagine for a moment I did. Imagine my daughter is married and my son-in-law comes to me and says, you know, Matt or whatever he's going to call me. Um, <laughs> we'll see. The reverend. Um, <laughs> Yes, peasant. Um, you know, it's like, let's just hope I keep having boys. Um, let's see, he comes to me and he says, um, I, I'd really like a loan. You know, we, we wanna, I want to do something with the house or whatever. I, I'd like a loan. Well, at the same time, he's deeply dishonoring to my daughter. You think I'm going to be like, yeah, I'll open up the floodgates of blessing on you. I would never do that. 
Husbands, one of the reasons we must honor our wives is because, well, one, have you ever tried to pray with a woman you're not honoring? Oh, my goodness, I have. I was just like, dishonoring her, okay, honey, it's time to pray. And you're like, Ugh. And you're both just laying there in bed like, dear Jesus, help her. You know, and, 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 and then she prays the same thing for you. You know, it's just like, ah. Oh. And then it, it's so difficult. And then do you really think that God is going to honor your request that people will see your life and glorify him while you're constantly dishonoring his daughter? He's saying, no, husbands, wives, don't treat your spouse like they deserve to be treated. You want a disaster for a marriage, treat your spouse like they deserve. Some of you, that's, some of us, that's the marriage we're living in. I give him or her exactly what they deserve. It's justice. Imagine if God treated you like that. Where would you be? This is why you need Jesus for a marriage like this. Marriage in light of eternity uh, is the most joyous kind, but it is not easy. You need Jesus for this. Wives, the only way you will ever submit to your husbands and show them respect despite the fact that they're not respectable is if you're daily fixing your eyes on the Jesus who submitted himself to the Father's will, saying, not my will but yours, as he went to the cross to die so that we would not perish forever. Husbands, the only way you will ever honor your wives, even when they're dishonoring you, is if you're daily setting your hope on Jesus who honored you by dying the death you deserve to die and rising to eternal life, promising you eternal life if you hope in him. If you want to honor your wife, the only way you'll be able to do that is to cling to the Jesus who honored you to the point of death. You need Jesus for this kind of marriage. This is not two steps to something slightly happier. You need the gospel for this.